Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by my friend and ERLC colleague, Josh Wester, who serves as the chair of research in Christian ethics, and he also leads our communications team. Hey, Jason. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, man. Good to be back. Today, we host Mary Eberstadt, who is an American essayist, novelist, and the author of numerous works, including her recent books, How the West Really Lost God and Primal Screams. Mary Eberstadt is a frequent contributor to Time, Wall Street Journal, National Review, and First Things. She also has served as an editor at the Public Interest, the National Interest, and Policy Review. She's been associated with a number of think tanks and in 2016 became the Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. You can follow Mary's work at her website, maryeberstadt.com. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you on the path of tackling some of these controversial social issues such as the sexual revolution, religious freedom, and identity politics? Well, thank you, Jason. So I've been writing in different genres uh, all of my adult life, and um, I found that more and more, especially during the last 15 years or so, I was aware that the world in which we live is inimical to human flourishing in so many ways. Uh, I was aware of the unique problems of our time, and I wanted to find out the empirical and other reasons for the kinds of issues that we're facing that people before us really didn't have to face. Issues like broken families and loneliness on a massive scale. Uh, and other kinds of dysfunction that we see in the modern world. And so that is what really pulled me in the direction of the research that I've been doing, is the desire not only to put a name to those things, but also to try and figure out how to make them better. Well, Mary, in your book, uh, Primal Screams, you make the case that identity politics is a direct result of the sexual revolution, and specifically uh, the sexual revolution's liquidation of the family. How do these areas tie together, and how are we seeing this breakdown in society play out in the digital age, especially with the rise of social media? So all of us are born with uh, the need to know who we are. That's what human beings are like. We want to answer that question, who am I? And what happened after the sexual revolution was that the usual answers to that question were taken off the table for many people. What I mean by that is that if you were to ask me, who am I, I would probably answer by saying, I'm a wife, I'm a mother of four, I'm a cousin, I'm an aunt, I'm a sister, etc. In other words, I would answer through my familial connections. Or I might go down the Christian route and say, well, I'm a Christian, that means I'm a child of God. Well, what we have to understand is that after the 1960s, there were profound changes to the family because of things like divorce, abortion, etc., on a scale that had never been seen before. As a result of this, many people, especially younger people, are not very well connected and grounded to their families. So the argument of primal screams 
is that between the combined forces of secularization and the sexual revolution, people can no longer answer that question in many cases as they used to be able to answer. And so they look for their identities elsewhere. That, I think, is a really important point. When we see how passionately people are attached to, say, their gender identities or their political identities, what we are seeing is that they have not been able to attach in the traditional ways, and so they are frantically searching for themselves via these collective um, enterprises that I think in the long run are very toxic for the individuals involved and also for our politics. Yeah, how do you see that playing out in terms of technology and social media and really kind of the push towards globalization? Uh, We kind of have an emphasis, a lack of emphasis on local communities as much as we have these broader communities, Um, whether it's digitally connected across across town or across nation or even, you know, transnationally. How do you see globalization playing into a lot of these conversations surrounding identity politics and tying ultimately back to the, the sexual revolution? Well, of course, social media is especially toxic for identity politics. The internet in general, I think, makes things worse this way because it gives us the illusion of connection when there isn't a real community there. There's, uh, in many cases, just a, a collection of people who think they are victimized, who are venting together. But that said, and acknowledging that the internet does some good things for us too, I don't think identity politics is a creature of the internet. And the reason is that identity politics was born before the internet. It comes into being in 1977 in the form of a document that was written by a collective of African-American radical feminists. And this document is the first time that the phrase identity politics is even used. And it's used to mean one thing. Essentially, it is used by people who are saying, we give up on the other people around us, we give up on the men in our lives, we give up on our families. We think that only people exactly like us can be counted upon to have our back. This is the original meaning of identity politics. It is born out of loneliness and frustration. And that year, 1977, is especially evocative, I think, because this is the time at which the first generation born into the sexual revolution is coming of age. So again, although the internet makes things worse from the point of view of intensifying these political and collective identities, uh, it can't be blamed this time around for the phenomenon of identity politics because that pre-existed. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, Mary, if I could just pivot back to something you were talking about in terms of identity. I know that a lot of uh, listeners of this podcast would really benefit from maybe just a little bit more reflection on that. So you talked about how uh, people are being separated, or you said it's been taken off the table in terms of them being able to identify with maybe conventional or traditional uh, structures of identity, whether that's faith or family uh, or, or other those more natural identity markers. Do you see, and I guess this is kind of a two-part question, do you see uh, in the future a, a pullback or a reversion back to some of those traditional or conventional identity, identity 
these? Or do you see this more in terms of kind of a dialectic where that was, that's the way things had conventionally been done. And now we're in this age of identity politics and we're going to end up with something on the other side of this. Like, do you have any thoughts about where you see this going? Yeah, I do think there's going to be some kind of restoration here because the way in which we are living is making a lot of people miserable. In the book, I summarize a lot of data, I I hope in a very readable way, but one thing I point to is the rise in psychiatric problems, again, especially among young people, the rise in uh, psychiatric medications, the steep rise in loneliness that we see at all parts of the life cycle now. We have to connect the dots between those adverse things and the way in which many of us have come to live. Families are smaller, families are more broken, families are less robust in the sense of uh, living intergenerationally is not something that most people have experience of now. And I think the overall effect has been to make us uh, sadder and lonelier, and we are not meant to live this way. We are social creatures. And another thing I do in Primal Screams is summarize a lot of evidence from the animal kingdom about how intensely social mammals are. So it's no wonder we have these problems when we have come to live in these ways that are unnatural for the kind of creatures that we are. And because of the widespread uh, negative fallout, I can't help but think there will be a reaction and that 10 or 20 years from now, there will be a lot more awareness of the actual roots of our problems. Our problems are not abstractions like heteronormativity or the patriarchy or the kinds of things that people point to um, when they speak of identity politics. Our problems are not uh, abstract like that. They are very much uh, earthly and uh, very much about the way we have come to live as a society and as individuals after the sexual revolution. And the way we've come to live is just too atomized to be good for human beings. To dig in a little bit more on the roots of some of these arguments that we're seeing playing out today, especially with the rise of social media and technology, in your book, How the West Really Lost God, you counter a lot of the conventional arguments uh, for secularization, especially the the argument specifically of the Enlightenment. And you show that this, the decline of the family has more to do with the rise of secularization than is previously thought. In what ways do you think that some of these conventional arguments for secularization got things right? And then also, where do you see that the idea of the family decline is a more compelling uh, examination and explanation of some of these uh, secularization trends? Well, let's look at one of the dominant explanations for secularization. It's this feeling that you you see come out in the New Atheist books um, a decade plus ago and elsewhere. And it's this feeling that, you know, by now we've gotten too smart uh, to be religious. Science has disproved religion and other things about our world have disproved religion So it's just that humanity is smarter now somehow. I think this is an explanation that should be rejected for a lot of reasons. One of which is that I don't think people get smarter as we go along. I don't think we get better as we go along. The 20th century wouldn't have been the bloodiest century in human history if that were the case. 
So if that's not what's going on in secularization, if it's not just that we got smart, what is happening? And, you know, I could cite a number of secular thinkers who all agree on one thing, which is that the churches in the West start to deteriorate rapidly after about 1963. They don't agree on why that's such a pivotal year, but I think the answer is pretty simple. Again, the sexual revolution is taking off. Uh, It becomes like a great big party that most of humanity is joining. The results to the family are catastrophic in many cases, but nobody really pauses to notice in the beginning because they have no idea how problematic this is all going to turn out to be. What it means is that a lot of people are not in church these days because they were not taken to church because uh, simply as a pragmatic matter, when families are smaller, when families are split, when there are only so many adults to go around, it just becomes logistically harder to get kids into a religious tradition and to make the sacrifices that it takes to get them religious education. So that, I think, is one reason for secularization that is not well understood. A second reason that I would offer up quickly is that those same changes to the family, I think, can make it harder for some people to understand the Christian story in the first place. The Christian story begins with the story of a a holy family. We have a loving, adoptive father, we have a mother, we have an infant. And these days, when half of the kids in the United States, for instance, are growing up without a biological dad in the home, that story is just harder to reach. There are kids out there who don't know what it's like to have a benevolent paternal figure in their life. And that, I think, is another uh, source of secularization that's Again, very practical, very down to the ground, and not well understood in sociology. Gosh, I think that is such a such a helpful answer, and I really uh, loved where you were highlighting the fact that it's not the case that we have just gotten smarter. I know uh, here at the ERLC, our boss, uh, Dr. Russell Moore, talks about this all the time in terms of the resurrection, and he talks to people who say, "Yeah, well, they, they were people were just more gullible or might naive or less educated back then," and his response is always. You know, people didn't come back from the dead then either. Uh, that that kind of miraculous truth that the Christian story is based on about the resurrection of Jesus is is the kind of thing that uh, it was as shocking in the first century as it is today. And so I really appreciated uh, what you shared there. One one of the things to follow up to your last answer would be uh, the fallout of the religious decline on society. So we've talked about the reasons uh, for secular secularization that you just laid out there. What do you what do you see in terms of uh, the fallout in terms of the state of public discourse, and our sense of morality, and even for the church? Well, I think the fallout is also going to be understood better 10 years from now or so. But the fact that there are fewer believing Christians is not a good thing for society. I would point first to what everybody complains about and nobody really does anything about, which is how divisive political discourse is and how ad hominem. And the reason I connect this to Christianity is that it's clear that more and more people in this country have not been taught to view their fellow men and women as brothers and sisters, the way Christians are taught to. 
And to say that is not to say Christianity is better than, you know, these other religions. It's to say that organized religion has a way of bringing people together, giving them roles in life. Uh, and we are seeing the absence of that in the kind of uh, very acrimonious displays in the public square. So that's one way in which the receding of Christianity is bad for America. Another way is again, commonsensical, Christians give a lot more to charity than secular people do. And not only Christians, religious people give more, they donate more of their time, they write more checks, they even donate more blood, as uh, Arthur Brooks once pointed out, than secular people. And to say that is not to knock secular people, it's just to say that when there are fewer Christians in the public square, there's less of that. And less of that is also not good uh, for the country. Well, Mary, one question I wanted to kind of follow up on is often when we talk about the rise of uh, the sexual revolution is what preceded it? What brought the sexual revolution about? And I know there's a number of kind of sociologists who have studied this, especially one of my favorite and listeners know I talk about Jacques Ellul a lot. Um, but he's a French sociologist who kind of tracked and even Neil Postman, you see, kind of pick up some of these streams about the Enlightenment and the rise of science and technology and kind of the technique that brought even about the rise of expressive individualism and then kind of bringing up to the sexual revolution, I think, is actually what you're proving is it's also the decline of the family. What ways do you see that technology or uh, science and uh, kind of technology has brought about even the sexual revolution of opening up opportunities for people to connect and to uh, kind of shed their prior sense of uh, kind of moral compass? Well, it's interesting because before the 1960s, there was actually a religious boom in the United States, and not just in the United States, but in most of the countries of the Western world. And this is not well understood. But following World War II, there was a lot more family formation. There was a lot more church attendance and the baby boom itself came out of that more general revival. So the question of what happened in the 60s does turn on technology somewhat. It does go back to the introduction of the birth control pill, the destigmatization uh, and widespread deployment of the birth control pill. That, I think, was the technological innovation that really kicked off the sexual revolution and brought so many changes with it. It's funny because in the beginning, of course, people were very hopeful about this. They thought that this would mean stronger marriages, that it would give men and women control over their fertility in a way that they had never known, and that this would strengthen families and strengthen society. And what no one anticipated was that the opposite came about, that uh, abortions, which were said to, to be going down because of the sexual revolution, instead skyrocketed. Divorces did the same. Uh, 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 single parenthood became a major thing. And so I think we can be uh, forgiving toward the people who at the very, very beginning of this didn't understand what the new technology would bring. But it's a lot harder for us 60 years later to look at the society around us and say, oh, this was a good thing. 
Well, so switching gears for just a second, at the end of the book, uh, Primal Screams, you did something that I thought was really incredible. You featured three essays from people offering different perspectives on your work, uh, essays from Rod Dreher, Mark Lilla, and Peter Thiel, uh, with their perspectives on your work. And I just want to get you to answer for our audience, why is it important uh, for readers to hear multiple perspectives on an issue like this? And how did you actually evaluate their arguments? Oh, thank you. Well, that was unusual. And I'm very grateful to my publisher because essentially the argument there was that Templeton Press had so much confidence in the thesis of Primal Screams that we felt as if we could test it against people, including people we knew would think differently. So, for example, Mark Lilla is a very well-established liberal, um, not a religious person. He gave a very respectful and highly critical uh, treatment to my argument. And essentially, like many treatments of the sexual revolution, it boils down to, well, the genie can't go back in the bottle, so why are we even talking about these things? Uh, but And I do answer that at the end of the book. Uh, but I appreciate that he was respectful. So was Peter Thiel, a libertarian, uh, who has a more economically nuanced argument for what happened that led to identity politics. Uh, and Rod Dreher and I are pretty much on the same page, but he made what I thought was a very important point. When we talk about these things, when we talk about civilization and what makes it thrive or decline, we always have to remember that humanity can forget some pretty big things. And he gives the example of how after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, the entire knowledge of how to construct a roof that would last for a substantial period of time, say centuries, just passed out of human existence for a while and had to be rediscovered. So I like that there were these commentators in the book. I think they added texture to the argument. And since the argument of primal screams is so new, um, I think it will be helpful to keep testing it over time by acquiring reactions from other than the usual quarters. So I'm, I'm grateful that those voices were included. Yeah, that was one of the features of the book that I really enjoyed, especially I actually first read this book as part of a doctoral seminar in ethics and morality and contemporary issues. And it was encouraging to me because I feel like one of the things that you do throughout your book and then having these additional commentaries at the end, you really model what a robust public discourse can look like of respecting one another, respecting each other's ideas and engaging with one another's work. Because ultimately, I think we get to a better place in our public discourse and our society as we need each other and we need these kind of arguments shaping and forming and helping to refine one another. One of the things that I wanted to kind of, as we start to end our conversation today, is to shift to is what ways do you, would you encourage Christians to practically seek to counter a lot of the identity politics that we see today? I think you do that in one way of inviting robust public discourse and discussion on some of these uh, big issues. But what are maybe some other ways that you would encourage Christians to step in and to counter a lot of these prevailing arguments of the day, but also not um, are doing so in a way that is hopeful um, and engaging rather than often what we see is just kind of retreating into our, our tribes and our polarization? Well, that is a tough one, but I have two thoughts about it. One is that I think to be Christian in the West today is to require courage. And it's not the kind of courage that we see on the battlefield. It's not exactly the courage of the martyrs. But we have to understand 
that people cave all the time on fundamental things because they're afraid of the public square. They're afraid of what people will say on Twitter. So to the extent that having courage means minimizing social media, I think that's something that every, not only Christian, but every serious person needs to think about. The other thought I have is hopeful. I think the more society deteriorates in certain ways around us, the more the examples shine forward of families and communities that are not in disarray, that are not spending their time spewing invective at each other. I think the example of the Christian family, of of sound churches, um, where study um, and prayer and other healthy pursuits are omnipresent, I think these examples are going to draw people in because, again, there's so much damage out there and so many individuals who are suffering that whether they're conscious of it or not, they're going to look for an alternative. I mean, we live in a world where so many people uh, say that they are victims, feel that they are victims, and I believe that they are victims, but they're not victims of the things they think they are. They are victims of the rug having been pulled out from under them as human beings. They are victims of lacking these associations and strong ties that many of the rest of us and many people who were born you know, earlier in human history just took for granted. So to the families out there who might be listening and to the Christians generally, uh, communities like yours, I, I should add, I'm a big Russell Moore fan, <laughs> um, communities like yours are going to draw people in just by dint of your example of lovingness and fairness um, and by the absence in your communities of the kinds of problems that we see in the secular public square. And that I think is really grounds for hope. And you never know when you will be reaching somebody just by the power of your example. No, I think that's a really powerful word. And one of the ways that Dr. Moore always says it is that uh, the church will welcome in the refugees of the sexual revolution, is that ultimately these things are not going to fulfill. They're not going to bring the identity and the self-worth and the the confidence that often we think they will. Um, but the church is there to welcome people in to say that we have the, the, we have the way, the truth, and the life. We have the hope of the gospel within us. And so we're able to do so in a hopeful way, in a confident way as we engage a lot of these pressing issues, but do so, as you said, in a courageous way, not buckling down, not uh, capitulating what we believe and what the truths of the universe, but doing so in a loving and kind way, knowing that ultimately these other kind of forms of truth, uh, if I want to say it that way, um, ultimately will not fulfill because they're ultimately not true. I know as we end our conversation today, I always like to leave listeners with a couple different resources. Uh, so outside of your two great books that we'll make sure to put in the show notes for listeners to grab a copy of, and especially for listeners' sake, uh, these two books just became paperback editions. So you can make sure to grab those a little bit cheaper, um, but well worth the investment to pick up both of these books by Mary. Mary, are there other books that you would recommend, maybe one or two resources that would kind of further a lot of the conversation that we've had today? Well, that's a tough one. I'm sure every time you interview, you get that reaction from people. Uh, I can mention a couple of things that uh, I return to over and over, and they're very different. But one is the writing of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was 
the greatest diagnostician of the 20th century and the 20th century uh, catastrophic struggles between communism and non-communism. He's a beautiful writer. He's been translated by various people and really anything he ever touched was worth reading, uh, especially if you wanted a short dose. Um, his address to the Harvard graduating class, and I think it was 1978, which laid out so many of the themes of our time, uh, the struggle for courage against cowardice and the struggle for integrity in the Western world. So I would recommend him, and from a very different direction, I read over and over the short stories of Flannery O'Connor, uh, whose life story was fascinating and short and who I think was the American who saw these eternal themes that we're talking about playing out in very particular ways, in her case, among people in the South uh, in the first half of the 20th century. She's a beautiful writer. She's uh, got shocking insights into Christianity and grace and the good life and evil and lots of other stuff. And uh, I would recommend her work to anyone as well. Well, for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those uh, resources in the show notes as well as Mary's books uh, that we've talked about here today on the podcast. But Mary, thank you so much for joining us here in Weekly Tech. This was a really fascinating conversation. Obviously, we could keep going for much longer and kind of dig into some of these, but I really appreciate the time you've taken out of your busy schedule to join us today. Well, thank you, Jason, and thank you, Josh, and everyone. I really enjoyed it. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really to help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Mary and learn more about her works, including the books that she recommended in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day as well as stay up to date with the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. 